Hi, I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and this is Newsfeed, our podcast about the intersection of technology, politics, and the media. And Ben Wittes sits right at that intersection as a, as a really central figure right now in, in understanding the investigations that are currently crippling the Trump administration. He's a co-founder, I think, and editor of the Lawfare blog, which is has always been a must-read for, you know, kind of a select few and has become this very central voice, essentially on the rule of law in, in the Trump era. And I, and I got to talk to him both about how he sees his role, including as a, at times, witness to conversations with the former FBI director, Jim Comey, and in understanding some of the kind of inscrutable things that Jim Comey has said. In his testimony, there was this cryptic moment where Trump says to him, we had that thing. Do you have any idea what he was talking about? I have no idea what he was talking about, and I think it's one of the most interesting moments in the prepared statement. We spoke on what now passes for a normal day in Washington when a senior Justice Department official, Rod Rosenstein, was thinking of recusing himself from the Russia investigation. And I think I wanted to just start by asking you a little about yourself. You're, you're, you're a reporter, not a lawyer, essentially. Like, did you ever, did you ever want to go to law school? How did you, how did you get um, into this, this line of work? Well, I never considered going to law school, honestly. I started my career as a reporter who was kind of focused on legal affairs because that's the newspaper that hired me was a legal newspaper. And so I kind of drifted into writing about law and found that I loved the law and loved writing about it. But then because of a weird accident of fate, I ended up at a very young age writing the Washington Post's legal affairs editorials. And so by the time I was 27 or 28, the, the moment to go to law school had passed, and I was writing the Post's editorials on the Supreme Court, on the impeachment of President Clinton, and on all sorts of judicial nominations issues that I really cared about, as well as certain national security law issues that eventually kind of took over my life. But there was never a question of me becoming a practicing lawyer of any kind. So you're, and you, you, you see yourself as a reporter, despite your, uh, your think tank uh, location? No, actually. I haven't been a reporter for many years. I mean, I was an editorial writer for 10 years or nine years. Um, But I think of myself as a a kind of legal writer, and that has elements of journalism. It has elements of think tank policy, wonky kind of stuff. It has elements of kind of conventional legal scholarship. And it has elements of kind of policy entrepreneurship. But I, I think I, I do things that reporters don't do and shouldn't do. Like, you know, I consult on policy issues sometimes. And I also don't do things that self-respecting reporters do. Like, I don't publish classified material. Uh, you know, my... my friend and colleague Shane Harris sometimes calls me a defrocked journalist and that's kind of the way I think of it. Yeah, I think it's I mean I think that's sort of a feature of this moment nobody has frocks anymore. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned you were at the Washington Post editorial board for 10 years and I think for 
many of the folks who now read you religiously, that would be the despised Washington Post editorial board, which during the period you were there was kind of a, like seen among the kind of upstart left-wing media in particular as a sort of symbol of the establishment's mistakes in the Bush era, and particularly around Iraq. And I was one of the reasons for that. While I was not directly involved in the paper's Iraq editorials. I was part of the board that took those positions, and I supported those positions. And I, I to the extent that people have uh, anger at the Washington Post editorial page for the positions we took on uh, Iraq, I am uh, part of that. And I, uh, and I was proud to be associated with the page at that time. And I've never run away from my share of whatever glory or ignominy we earned in that period. I keep reminding people, you know, of, of the left who've become admirers of lawfare, admirers of me, that you don't have to go back far before I'm, in the views of a lot of people, one of the villains. And I don't run away from any of that stuff. You know, I'm, lawfare is fundamentally a, a, a site about national security law, and, you know, a lot of its writers, including me, uh, believe in strong national security authorities of a type that used to be associated with, people used to use a lot of pejorative words to describe us, like, you know, handmaidens of power and courtiers of the power elite and uh, some that were less nice than that. If we can scare any any further um, kind of progressives off of this podcast right now, is there anything in particular you, you sort of point to in your views that you find effectively alienates your new fans? You know, I, I, I just keep reminding people that I'm not part of the team, right? And like a year ago, people were upset at me because of because I was not on board on the idea that the biggest threat to liberty in the in in the world was the regulation of encryption, right? And over the course of, of Lawfare's history, we've generally been thought of as, you know, part of the dinosaur right, because some of us have defended things like Guantanamo and drone strikes and uh, robust surveillance authorities under FISA and Executive Order 12333. And, you know, it's only in the last year as in some of our views, a major national security threat has arisen in the form of the functioning of the presidency of the United States under, under President Trump, uh, that a lot of people have discovered that there is uh, value and maybe wisdom and maybe knowledge in this group of, of national security legal scholars and practitioners who had once been A, relatively obscure, and B, whose work was principally of interest to practicing people in the government and often in some tension with the views of conventional liberal opinion. Was there a moment when you, as, as an institutionalist, as somebody whose ideology is really centered on the, the idea of the rule of law in part, when you f realized that this administration was going to be defined by, I guess, what you called incompetent malevolence? I mean, was there sort of, did you have a, you know, road to Damascus moment here where you sort of, you know, realized that it, maybe you weren't on a team, but you were definitely not on the team of people who, by the way, I think on paper probably share some of your views on a strong national security state in the Trump administration? Well, look, my road to Damascus moment 
was in March of last year. Uh, in December of 2015, John Bellinger, who's one of our uh, one of our Republican contributors, he was State Department legal advisor in the Bush administration, and he was NSC legal advisor earlier in the Bush administration. He wrote a piece on the theme that Trump was a threat to national security. Uh, three months later, in March of the following year, I elaborated on that post, and I, I wrote a long post identifying seven threats to national security posed by the Trump candidacy, let alone presidency. And that post was entitled Trump as National Security Threat. And a few months after that, when it became really clear that he was going to get the nomination, I wrote a series of posts called Trump and the Power of the Presidency. And first of all, I think they stand up extremely well. The first one of them is about the possibility which was understated at the time, under-discussed at the time, of abuse of the Justice Department. So that was in the spring and early summer of last year. In the weeks before the election, I wrote a post, set of posts, again, saying that we really had to throw out traditional party identities and think of this as a matter of a, of a sort of coalition of democratic forces, small-D democratic forces, against an authoritarian movement. So that's actually where I come from. And by the way, in those, in those posts, I said you have to take the possibility of a Trump victory very seriously because things that have a you know, small percent chance of happening happen all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that the answer to your question is I took this problem very seriously from the beginning because I am a student of executive power and I saw the things that Donald Trump was saying and I said, this mood, this personality is simply not consistent with the nature of the office. The things he's promising are not consistent with the nature of the office and his behavior and personality are not consistent with the nature of the office to which he very might, well might ascend. Two days after the election, Susan Hennessy and I wrote a piece that said, the thing you got to watch for is the firing of Jim Comey, that this would be a particular danger sign. That was November 10th. So I don't think it was a road to Damascus moment for me personally here. I think it was a understanding of the nature of the security authorities of the presidency and the nature of the individual in question. And lawfare itself, of course, does not take positions on anything. No one's ever been chosen to write for the site because of their views of politics or Donald Trump, for that matter. I do think it is striking that there is a remarkable degree of consensus that we are in a dangerous moment vis-a-vis -vis the executive branch of the United States. When did you first meet Jim Comey? I've known Jim for more than a decade. Um, we met when... He was deputy attorney general, and I was an editorial writer at the Washington Post. There was a moment where, because you, on May 18th, described your conversations with him to the New York Times in this kind of extraordinary piece. Um, I think I saw you described as his best friend and essentially as, as sort of speaking for him. Could you just sort of describe how, <laughs> exactly where, where on that spectrum you guys are? 
Look, there are a group of people to whom Jim is extremely close, and um, I'm not part of that inner circle of intimates. Uh, never have been, never claimed to be. The more I disclaim that, ironically, the more people tend to hype our relationship. And there's this sort of meme that's developed that, you know, we are particularly close. And that's not true. Um, we're friends. We're good friends. But I've tried always to avoid overstating the nature of the relationship. Washington's full of town, uh, you know, a town full of people who overstate their relationships with people. And I don't really want to be part of that. Right. Well, how did, how did you decide, because you made very clear in that, in that May piece that Comey had not, in fact, sent you out to deliver a message, but that you had decided on your own to reveal his private conversations because you, you thought in retrospect that they revealed a kind of malevolence from Trump that wasn't initially clear to you. How do you make that decision? Uh, so, look, the answer was I sat down when that New York Times story came out and this is the New York Times story about the loyalty oath dinner. And I read that story and I shouldn't have been shocked by it because of everything that I had already known. But I hadn't processed that information through the right narrative lens. I had known that Jim had been asked for loyalty and said he could only give honesty. But without the framing of this dramatic dinner and the sort of grotesque impropriety of that taking place in that scene, it hadn't all clicked. And the moment I read that story, I said, my God, I understand a whole lot of things that he had said to me in a way that I hadn't understood them before. I can't remember what day of the week it was. It may, may have been a Friday or a Saturday. You know, and the next day I called Mike Schmidt and I told him I had additional information for him. And that's the answer to your question. Did you tell Comey you were going to do it? I have not. Um, don't want to discuss any conversations that I've had with Jim other than the ones that I've discussed in public. For reasons that are kind of consistent with your view in the world, you don't publish classified information on your site. And... And no, there's, I, the, there are very specific reasons that we don't publish classified information on the site. And let me be clear yeah, about what yep, they are. Go for it. Number one is that a bunch of our contributors, including our managing editor, have security clearances. And a bunch of people associated with the site have active security clearances or would someday want to reactivate them and we would want them to go back into government. And we don't want to put people in a position where contributing to lawfare is inconsistent with the roles that they need to play in government. The second reason is, is that we have this group of student contributors who are uh, part of the heart and soul of the site. And most of them get involved with the site because they want to go into government and do national security policy and law work. And we can't ever put them in the position in which we would jeopardize their ability to get a security clearance in the first instance because of work they did with us. Do you have any sort of philosophical objections to leaks to publishing classified information, or are these just these sort of practical ones? I have a deep philosophical objection 
to blowing classified programs without an extremely good reason. That's not to say a philosophical objection to ever publishing anything that's classified, because some material is improperly classified, some material may be properly classified, but you know the but the public interest in the in the information may outweigh that in the minds of a reasonable newspaper. So I'm not saying that the amount of classified information that you should publish as a newspaper is zero by any means. I am saying that uh, the modern interest in blowing highly sensitive classified intelligence programs that are themselves legal and appropriate and about which you're really not doing more than sort of telling a good story is something that I'm not sympathetic to. I'm, I'm not a hard liner about it at all. And I do think the reasonable posture for a newspaper is different from the reasonable posture for me. But I'm not a fan of the way major newspapers handled the Snowden leaks. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. But actually, I just wanted to get back to some of the Comey specifics because I thought there might be things that you could shed light on. The first of which was in his testimony, there was this cryptic moment where Trump says to him, we had that thing. <laughs> and that this was one of the reasons he'd expected kind of a kind of loyalty from Comey. Do you have any idea what he was talking about? I have no idea what he was talking about. And I think it's one of the most interesting moments in the prepared statement. Do you think Comey knows what he was talking about? I don't know. I So let, let me say I, this is not something I've ever discussed with him. And if it yep. were, I, I would probably not discuss it with you. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it was just working off the public record where in that statement Comey had an inference about what something meant. He disclosed in the statement right. what the inference that he made was. And so, for example... When in the loyalty oath conversation, he says very specifically that he tried that he uh, interpreted this as an effort to engage him in a patronage relationship, right? And when he's asked about the Flynn uh, request, he makes clear that he interpreted it as a directive. In this situation, he doesn't say what he thinks it meant, and in fact. I think it says in the text that he says he kind of didn't know what it referred to, right? And I, first of all, take that at face value. And secondly, the fact that in other situations where there's an inference to draw, he, he drew it. I think suggests that he may have been quite perplexed by that interaction. And Trump sometimes talks nonsense. So it's possible that it was that. Um, Yes. The the other line in there was it was the, or the in, in your description of it was it was about Comey's wariness is the word about the deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein and I wonder what do, are you wary of him I mean I think he's in a very difficult position right now but what would you feel he's doing his job so I've known Rod Rosenstein for twenty years and I've always thought highly of him and I was absolutely shocked by his conduct in. Comey's firing, and in the aftermath of which I called on him to resign. In the weeks since then, Rod has done some genuinely courageous things, including appointing Bob Mueller, including 
behaving in a fashion that I think has genuinely protected Mueller's investigation in the context of a president who's clearly gunning for it and publicly testifying that he would not, despite what the noises coming out of the White House, he would not be party to removal of Mueller for reasons other than good cause. So I think Rod's performance has been extremely mixed and he is under an incredibly difficult set of circumstances right now. And I do not retract anything that I've said about him in the past. But right now, my concern is for him to be not kneecapped by a president who Twitter kneecapped him this morning, right, and accused him of or investigating him for firing an FBI director he had urged him to fire. And I think, you know, right now the president is railing against Rod Rosenstein. And I assume that's for the honorable side of what Rod has done over the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, does that make, I mean, I think there's this question now of whether he'll recuse himself and, and the report that he's considering it. Would you prefer he not? I believe that the proper thing for Rod Rosenstein to do is not to continue in office. I have said that and I continue to believe it. I think once you've been party to the sort of charade that he was party to in the removal of the FBI director, um, your your proper role in public life is, is extremely limited. I have d- additional concern to protect the integrity of the investigation that is ongoing. And right now, those two feelings are somewhat in tension with one another. And I don't honestly know what the proper way to resolve them is. I do think as the leader of an investigation in which you're sort of a witness at this point, in addition, in which the president for whom you work has tweeted a vote of no confidence in you, it is very hard to continue running that investigation. And so I would not be at all surprised to see a recusal from him in the coming days. Do you expect Trump to ultimately fire Mueller? I have long since giving up um, predicting the behavior of Donald Trump, and I wish others would do the same. You know, Shelley once uh, wrote a poem that ends with the line, not shall endure, but mutability. And I think we could amend that to say that not shall endure, but uh, eccentricity. And that would not be a terrible way to describe any anticipation of the behavior of Donald Trump. But, you know, we decided that some measure of this was okay the day we elected him. Every time he does something like this and we allow him to get away with it, we uh, normalize more of it. I dissent from that election and I dissent from the normalization. I think it's an erosion of the presidency on a daily, hourly basis. And I, uh, there's no part of me that has any compromise to make with it. But, you know, that, that ship is not one that I'm piloting. And so, you know, asking me to predict it <laughs> is a little, you know, it's, a, Tr- it's just not my department anymore. Nope. Nobody's department. The um, do, is there something Mueller you think is or ought to be doing to build an investigation that could at any moment have the head cut off it? Does that affect the shape of the investigation? 
Oh, I think it does. I think it has to. If you're Mueller and you are very keenly aware that you may not be there tomorrow, I think that may cha change the way you interact with the subject matter. So let me give you two examples. The first is, in a normal investigation, you start with the small fish, right? And you mm -hmm. investigate the small fish, you try to bring pressure against them, you flip them, and then you work your way up the chain. But here, the president can pardon the small fish at any moment. And once the president does that, the investigation is over. And so this may be part of the explanation for why this investigation is focused on Trump from the beginning. And right, so you, you've front-loaded the stuff that doesn't require you go directly to the president's obstruction issues. Now, I don't know the answer to this question, but it's worth asking if Mueller did not know that he could be removed at any moment, would he be doing that? Well, that's, a, that's one interesting question. Right. The second interesting question is if you are Mueller and you know that you can be removed at any moment, do you put any systems in place for what happens the day that that happens so that the information that you've collected does not go away, right? So that the institutional function of the office has, there's some fail safe. And I don't know the answer to that question either, but I would think that that would be something that a person as smart as Mueller dealing with this situation would, would give some serious thought to. My, my last question is, is about lawfare, sort of its position in the ecosystem, because in Russia, there's a site called Life News. I don't know if you've ever run across it. It's a pretty reliable source of information coming out of the national security establishment when somebody's arrested. Sometimes it has the photos first. When um, It's where you read the tea leaves of the Russian security apparatus. And it has always struck me as like a pretty unhealthy feature of Russia's, one of many that the security apparatus has its own media voice and its own arm into the public conversation that's not mediated by, I mean, there, what's, you know, not, not even really pretending to be a democratic, or I guess it is still pretending, is are you guys essentially sort of the voice of the unelected national security state? I think, you know, maybe deep state is a nonsense term, but, but that a way for people who really ought to be governed by their democratically elected masters to go around that. So obviously, um, if I thought that's what we were, that would be a matter of some shame. It's not the way I think about what we do at all. So Lawfare started because a group of us who'd all written stuff together, none of whom were part of that, you know, the deep state. You know, one of us was a law professor at, at Harvard Law School. One of us was a law professor at U-Texas. And one of us was a Brookings scholar. And so what we had in common was that, first of all, that we were not subscribers to human rights orthodoxies, and that we were people who found ourselves often in, you know, friendly but adversarial dialogue with what we thought of as human rights orthodoxies that dominated the professional discussions outside of government, but were not the basis in which people in government were actually making decisions. And so the question that we were struggling with and that sort of led to the creation of lawfare was what if we thought of the government people as the audience 
And we thought of the goal as to provide the sort of analysis that would be actually helpful in the kind of decisions that they actually have to make. And it turned out that if you do that, you develop a very passionate readership inside of government. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Ben. I'll, uh, and, and we can both kind of race back to the internet now. We don't know, what, see who see who's resigned in the last 20 minutes. Yep, my pleasure. Take care. Newsfeed was produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, Daryl Levy, and Alex Laughlin. 